We've all heard the expression, kids will be kids. But sometimes children act in a way that cannot be explained away so simply. When a young person shows symptoms of fidgeting, issues in getting along with others, excessive talking, especially at inappropriate times, frequent daydreaming, forgetfulness, or risky behavior, it's possible that child is affected by attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, commonly referred to as ADHD. In fact, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimate that one in every ten kids have been diagnosed with ADHD, making it the most common neurobehavioral disorder diagnosed in the U.S. But as challenging as ADHD can be for children suffering from it, it can be equally challenging for medical professionals trying to accurately diagnose it. I think it's very difficult to diagnose ADHD because there's not a blood test for it, right? So we have to collect information from parents, teachers, coaches, and then take all that information and try to make the best diagnosis possible. And clinicians are really challenged in that process because there are so many other things that can look like ADHD. Because sometimes medical conditions share the same symptoms as an emotional or behavioral disorder in a child. Children who come in with behavioral concerns may have other diagnoses underlying that changed behavior. They may have serious hormonal problems. They may have other conditions related to any other system that can affect how their behavior has changed. It's always a good thing to keep all the possibilities in mind. To the extent that even a child's own parents believe their son or daughter has ADHD, only to discover it's something else causing emotional or behavioral issues. I thought he had ADHD. I mean, it fit all the symptoms, and so it makes complete sense to me how it was diagnosed because it was diagnosed by at least three professionals. Find out how medical professionals diagnose attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, as well as the challenges the process presents. And later, you'll hear from one area mother who was sure her son had ADHD, until treatment and further testing revealed something entirely different. It's all inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. And as always, I'm honored to spend the next 30 minutes with you as we discover together, today, and on each show. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you monthly by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freydert Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all our member institutions in advancing biomedical research and finding new drugs, treatments, therapeutics, and interventions that are better, faster, and more economical than ever. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. Just this past fall, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released its report titled Diagnostic Experiences of Children with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, which focused on the findings of interviews with parents about their child's initial diagnosis with ADHD. Dr. Susanna Visser is lead epidemiologist in the Division of Human Development and Disabilities at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia. And she's the lead author of the CDC's latest report on ADHD. We recently had an opportunity to speak with Dr. Visser to learn more about what exactly ADHD is, how it's diagnosed, and the challenges of diagnosing it. 
We began by having Dr. Visser provide an overview of ADHD. So ADHD is a developmental disorder of a group of symptoms developmentally appropriate for a young child, a two and a three-year-old, for example. You would expect to be hyperactive and impulsive and, and inattentive, not being able to sit still for long periods of time. But as a child ages, you expect the child to be able to sit for longer and longer periods of time, focus in on things that interest them. And then as they get older, they should be able to focus in and maintain attention on things that maybe aren't so interesting to them, but they know that they should, for example, schoolwork. So this disorder presents when the child has these symptoms and they are unable to manage those symptoms of inattention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity relative to their friends. They appear to be more hyperactive, impulsive, and inattentive. And the real crux of the diagnosis is that these symptoms aren't just present, but they're causing problems in the child's life, particularly at home, with friends, and at school. And if you see that impairment, it's really important to intervene because there are some excellent treatments out there that can really have an important impact on a child's functioning. Just how common is this? disorder. We've estimated that approximately 11% of children 4 to 17 years of age have received a diagnosis during childhood and approximately 9% of all children 4 to 17 have a current diagnosis of ADHD. So it's considered a common developmental disorder. And she says there's many factors, both biological and environmental, that can cause it. There are a whole host of causes that likely contribute to the expression of ADHD. There are some very strong genetic predictors, and there have been some candidate genes that have been identified. We also know that there are environmental factors that can cause ADHD symptoms. Lead, that's one possibility. Other heavy metals can certainly cause symptoms that look like ADHD. We also know that environmental stressors, toxic stress, and abuse and neglect can also express themselves in symptoms of ADHD in young children. So it can be very heterogeneous, but what we know is that there are very clear biological differences in the brains of children who do and do not have ADHD. So what are some specific symptoms you can watch for if you think your child might have ADHD? All children express symptoms of hyperactivity, impulsivity, and inattention at some point in their lives. And it's important to watch those symptoms carefully, try to create a nice structured environment so that the children understand, you know, what's permitted, what's appropriate, what the disciplinary action is going to be if they misbehave, being really consistent with discipline, and trying to be very positive. If all of these behaviors of the parent do not address the symptoms, then having a conversation with their physician and talking about their concerns is the most appropriate course of action. A physician will be able to talk to them about what's appropriate and when the symptoms might be at a level that's inappropriate for the child's age. And then you can discuss treatment options that might fit with the family's preferences. As lead author of the CDC's recent ADHD report, Dr. Visser explains the purpose of her team's study. Our focus was really to try to use a national sample of children drawn from across the nation who had been diagnosed with ADHD and really ask their parents about the diagnostic experiences at the time of that first diagnosis. So who was included in that diagnostic process, what tools were used to diagnose the child. And we also were looking for differences by age to try to understand, you know, are children who are younger receiving a different diagnostic process than children who are older? According to the report's findings, what age are children typically being diagnosed with ADHD? We were looking at a population of children who, at the time of the initial survey that we conducted, they were 4 to 17 years of age and did a follow-up of that core survey and called them back if the parent had indicated that the child had ADHD. And so those children were about 2 to 15 years of age at the time of the initial survey and were now 4 to 17 years of age. So we were able to look at children who had been diagnosed 
time in childhood. And what we find is that the average age of diagnosis is age seven. The median age is age six. So there are a large number of children who are also diagnosed at very young ages. About a third of children are diagnosed before age six. And who typically first notices symptoms of the disorder in the child? The family members are typically someone who's first concerned about the child's behavior, attention, or performance. There is a significant difference with the family member being much more likely to first notice the problems in children diagnosed at an early age, sometime between zero and five. And then we see a little bit more higher rates of diagnosis and early concerns reported by those in school or daycare. So someone like a teacher or a daycare worker among children who are slightly older than that between six and 15 years of age. As far as who most commonly diagnoses a child's ADHD, Dr. Visser says her report finds... Primary care provider, regardless of age, usually a, a pediatrician or a family practice physician would be the person who diagnoses, and that's about half of, of all children diagnosed with ADHD. But we also see that specialists like psychiatrists, psychologists that are outside the school, as well as neurologists also diagnose ADHD. Next, Dr. Visser shares the various processes her report finds are most commonly used in making diagnoses of ADHD. We saw that clinicians are typically using behavior rating skills or checklists, which are recommended tools that the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry would recommend a physician to use. So basically about 90%, a little more than that, of children are receiving a diagnosis with the benefit of these behavioral rating skills or checklists. Almost all of them received a diagnosis after a conversation with the parent about the child's behavior. That is really indicative of some form of clinical interview. And about three quarters of children receive neuropsychological testing, a little bit higher rates among children diagnosed under six and a little bit lower rates among those diagnosed somewhere between the ages of six and 15. And then just under a third of children are diagnosed with inclusion of neurological imaging or some form of laboratory test. And these are typically used to maybe screen for lead exposure. If a child has lead poisoning, they may exhibit symptoms of ADHD, that sort of thing. About 30% of all children receive that sort of testing as part of their diagnostic process. But she recognizes that even with solid tools and guidelines for assessing ADHD, getting the correct diagnosis is still a challenge. That can be very complicated, and the American Academy of Pediatrics tries to provide supporting direction for how to do that. The best course of action really is to do a diagnosis that fits with AAP's recommendations. So first starting with a structured diagnostic tool, one of the checklists that have been validated for use, and there are lots of great free options out there that a clinician can use. After discussing the symptoms with the parents and then asking about impairment and how much these symptoms impair the child, then they can start talking about other sorts of causes. You know, if this isn't caused by a biological predisposition, what else could it be? Is the child sleeping well? And that can help rule out sleep disorders, which a child who is sleep deprived can also look like they have ADHD. And really the clinician knowing their family well is probably one of the better predictors if you're going to get a solid diagnosis. But using those AAP guidelines and having a good conversation that really looks for alternative explanations for the cause of the symptoms is very, very important and articulated in our clinical guidelines. And she adds, it's understandable how an initial diagnosis of ADHD may not hold up over time. We know that 11% have ever been diagnosed and about 9% have a current diagnosis. So you can see that 2% of children are diagnosed and the diagnosis does not persist. And I think that there are really good reasons why the diagnosis might not continue. I think it's reasonable to expect that sometimes a diagnosis of ADHD would not continue throughout the child's life because the child really does develop in a way that they no longer meet criteria for ADHD. And other times, 
sometimes because they've been able to improve on the diagnosis and realize that it looked like ADHD, but it was actually something else. Finally, Dr. Visser recommends some resources for parents who believe their child shows signs of having ADHD. We have funded a national resource center accessed at www.help4adhd.org. This website has information for parents, for educators, and for clinicians about ADHD. Also, our website, www.cdc.gov ADHD. I encourage your listeners to look up our website and get information about not only ADHD, but all the conditions that we focus on here at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I appreciate your interest. We'll post that information on our CTSI website along with this show. That's Dr. Susanna Visser, lead epidemiologist in the Division of Human Development and Disabilities at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta and lead author of the CDC's recent report on ADHD. We genuinely appreciate Dr. Visser sharing her time and expertise for today's program. In just a few minutes, we'll hear from one local mother who was sure her son had ADHD until treatment for that disorder, plus further clinical testing, revealed he had something entirely different. But first, we wanted to get the perspective of a local pediatrician on how a medical condition can sometimes mirror the symptoms of a neurobehavioral condition, such as ADHD, leading to an inaccurate initial diagnosis. For this, we reached out to Dr. Omar Ali, pediatric endocrinologist at Children's Hospital of Wisconsin and associate professor, Division of Endocrinology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Ali says that sometimes medical conditions in children are first diagnosed as behavioral-related conditions such as ADHD, but he is quick to point out... It is not very common. Most of the time, the diagnosis comes because of other complaints. But occasionally, we do see someone who has behavioral diagnosis like ADHD or depression and who turns out to have another medical condition that is causing this. It's not a primarily psychiatric problem or psychological problem. So uh, with ADHD, perhaps not that common. But these things can be misdiagnosed, and that does happen. It's not unheard of. And although it's not common, he says there are some endocrine-related diseases that may first be diagnosed as behavioral conditions based on symptoms shared by both. The most obvious example would be hyperthyroidism. People who have an overactive thyroid gland, those children who have an overactive thyroid gland, they have, they're very fidgety, they're very nervous, they have difficulty sitting still and paying attention and staying on task. And these same features are things that are commonly seen in children with attention deficit hyperactivity. It's quite possible, and we do see such cases where someone later turns out to have hyperthyroidism who was initially suspected of having just ADHD. That would be the most common. Occasionally, we see other endocrine disorders that are picked up initially as a behavioral problem, Uh, sometimes very difficult or bizarre behavior in children who may have very high calcium levels. So we've had a couple of cases where people had hyperparathyroidism. Their parathyroid gland was overactive. They have high calcium levels, but they had gone to the extent of going to a psychiatric facility before they were correctly diagnosed. So when a child has a medical issue, particularly a rare or uncommon one, how do doctors know when to begin considering physical illnesses versus psychological ones that are affecting the child's behavior? Is there a specific protocol for this? 
There isn't a specific protocol. In medical training, everyone is told that common diagnoses are common and rare ones are rare, but you have to keep the rare ones in the back of your mind when you see a patient. So a good physician would be expected to look carefully at the child, uh, look through his history, see if there are elements in his story that don't fit the typical common diagnosis that's being considered. And then to see the physical examination, even if he came in with mostly behavioral complaints, you absolutely want to examine every child carefully because if you find something physical, that's a very strong indication that it's not just a behavioral disorder, something else is going on. Uh, so physical findings would be an obvious giveaway. For example, with hyperthyroidism, which I said you can confuse with attention deficit, a child with hyperthyroidism would have a very fast heartbeat, uh, they could have high blood pressure, they could be sweating, they could have a tremor. So if you see these things, then any competent physician would be expected to think about another diagnosis, not just attention deficit. In addition to a child's emotional or behavioral symptoms pointing to an issue, what physical symptoms make diagnosis of a medical condition more likely. Physical findings in general, if you see something physically different, obviously someone looks extremely tanned, they have a fast heartbeat, they have a high blood pressure, they've lost weight or gained weight to an unusual extent. If they have a hearing problem, if they don't seem to hear properly or see properly, all of these could be signs that uh, something else is going on. So usually it's the physical findings that will tip you off. Then should medical causes of emotional or behavioral symptoms automatically be considered when diagnosing a child? Dr. Ali believes so. Medical causes should be considered. In principle, we should always have this in the back of our mind. We don't ascribe something to being purely psychological phenomena without at least thinking in our mind once that could it be something else. Next, Dr. Ali tells us that perhaps the biggest challenge with diagnosing children is they typically can't help doctors much with the process. Children are a diagnostic challenge in this way because of the fact that they can't describe their own symptoms very well a lot of the time. The very youngest children, obviously the infants and toddlers, they can't tell you at all what they're feeling. But even children who have reached school age may not give you a very accurate explanation of what's going on. And it's a little harder than it is in adults where you expect that they'll be able to give you a better story about what is going on with them which makes the parent's role in the diagnostic process all the more important. But, as Dr. Ali points out, there are limits. The parents obviously have a completely central role in diagnosing children because we usually get our history or complaint through the parents. And it is the parents who bring the child to the physician. So the parents obviously have a role in giving as complete history as possible. The more they can tell us about the kind of symptoms the child is experiencing, the more likely we are to make a more accurate diagnosis. But sometimes what can happen is that the parents themselves have some awareness of a particular common diagnosis like attention deficit and in their own mind have also decided already that this is what the child has. This is not a very inappropriate or unexpected thing, but it may mislead both the parent and the physician because they may just be guided towards that diagnosis. They've already made up their mind. So it's important that they bring all the facts to the physician and not try to filter out a particular story that fits a preconceived diagnosis. Hear that, mom and dad? A second opinion can be vital and necessary, but get it from another trained professional rather than WebMD. Finally, his advice to parents for helping doctors zero in on the real issue and get to the correct diagnosis and treatment sooner. Just let the physician know everything that's going on as much as they can so that the physician is not misled either. 
And then, of course, once the process starts, we expect physicians to be competent and to be able to reach the correct diagnosis, but we are all human. So if the physician has jumped to a conclusion that the parents themselves feel is not necessarily the correct one, or they keep thinking this may be more than what you think it is, they should not be afraid to say that to the physician. I think doctors should not mind hearing that. They are in a position to explain why this is the appropriate diagnosis. But being challenged is a good thing. Sometimes may have made a mistake and it may make them realize that they haven't thought of something important. That's Dr. Omar Ali, pediatric endocrinologist at Children's Hospital of Wisconsin and associate professor, Division of Endocrinology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Thank you, Dr. Ali. Up next, our CTS Eye on the Community focuses on one area mother who experienced the not-too-common but all-too-real experience of having her son initially diagnosed and treated for ADHD, only to discover that he was actually suffering from a serious autoimmune disease that shared symptoms with the behavioral disorder. Carrie and her son Jacob only recently learned the correct diagnosis for the young boy's symptoms. Today, she's agreed to share their experience in hopes of helping other parents who may have children going through a similar diagnostic process. To begin with, Carrie says she and her husband saw symptoms and had suspicions that there was an issue very early on with their son. He was always a quirky kid from birth. He was born early. He was just kind of off. And by the time he got into preschool, teachers had noticed a lot of speech errors, a lot of sensory issues and things like that. Something was off, but we couldn't put our hand exactly on what it was that was off. But despite some noticeable issues, she says her son's quality of life didn't seem to suffer early on, although his behavior had a different effect on the rest of the family. We walked on eggshells around him. We were afraid that anything we did could cause a meltdown, could cause severe anger issues. So everything in our family became trying to make peace around his life and make sure things were going the way he wanted. And because symptoms surfaced early on, initial diagnosis started at a young age as well. When Jacob was four and a half years old, his speech teacher had first identified that she saw a lot of sensory issues. So we took him to an occupational therapist who diagnosed sensory processing disorder. It was very much across the board. It affected every part of his life. That was the first diagnosis. Followed by a diagnosis of ADHD during elementary school. He was first diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 10. It was the middle of fifth grade when I started getting the phone calls saying that they were having major issues with getting him to stay focused in class, getting him to sit still, not being able to stay focused focused on any one thing other than his love of soccer. But anything in a school setting, any chores or anything he would be asked to do, he would say yes and then go off the other direction, which can be very typical in kids, but his was just so consistent. And it was fairly sudden that we noticed this change in behavior. Focus issues, fidgety, lack of impulse control, classic ADHD, right? Well, not so fast, because treatment first with cognitive behavioral therapy and then medication didn't make things better. In fact, interestingly enough, his teacher, the one comment that will stick in my mind forever is when she said to me that he was the only student she had ever had who actually was worse on the ADHD medication. And in hindsight, that should have been one of the clues that we were barking up the wrong tree. The ADHD symptoms did not go away on medication. So then with the doctor and his counselor's blessings, we took him off of those medications. His sixth grade year pretty much fell apart piece by piece. It was a horrible year. 
year for him in school, socially with teachers, academically, and at home. Another school year, another ADHD medication, but things continued to go from bad to worse. In seventh grade, he was still so off, and the teacher said he would walk out to his locker to get a book he forgot and come back without the book. So we again tried the non-stimulant ADHD med. That they saw no difference in. So despite him being severely underweight, we tried a stimulant medication in November of last year. And it was the week right before Thanksgiving, and he had a lot of stomach discomfort right around that time. And so we decided to wait to try it for the first time over Thanksgiving break to put him on this new ADHD medication which is the typical protocol for treating ADHD. We had him on that medication, and the stomach symptoms kept getting worse and worse. We sent him back to school after Thanksgiving, and he started having issues where he would tell us he would see black dots. In hindsight, he was like seeing the stars before you're ready to pass out. First full week of December, I sent him to school Thursday morning, even though he didn't feel good. He walked right into the office and said, I can't stay here. I went and picked him up. Friday, I sent him to school, and I got the call to come get him. The weekend was really rough. And by Monday morning, we took him into the pediatrician. The pediatrician was very concerned about what he saw. Jake was seeing the black dots. He couldn't take more than a couple steps without feeling as if he was going to pass out. They had us go to a children's emergency room. They did CT scans of his brain. They tested his heart and chose to admit us. And by the end of that first night at children's, I give them all the credit in the world. We had an idea that it was his adrenal glands in some form. And we got the official diagnosis two days later of Addison's disease. disease. What exactly is it? Pediatric endocrinologist Dr. Omar Ali. Addison's disease is a disease in which the adrenal glands are not functioning properly. The adrenal glands are a pair of glands on top of the kidneys and they make several essential hormones. In children who have Addison's disease, the outer part of these glands has been damaged somehow. So some essential adrenal hormones are not being produced anymore. They usually come in with complaints like feeling tired all the time, feeling easily fatigued, maybe even dizziness or fainting. So those may be hints that this is Addison's disease. At last, the correct diagnosis for her son. And the result? He is happier and healthier than he has ever been in his life. I asked his teachers what they would say, and they were just amazed at how much he smiles in class, how he relates to other people now. Because it was actually school that had seen most of the signs of depression prior to this. And as thankful as Carrie is to now have the correct diagnosis, she does understand how doctors initially believed that it was ADHD affecting her son's behavioral pattern. I thought he had ADHD. I mean, it fit all the symptoms. As I learn more about Addison's, what I'm finding is a lot of patients describe a brain fog from having lack of cortisol in their bodies. And that brain fog is exactly what ADHD is. You can't concentrate on anything. You're using that little bit of cortisol that your body does produce just to stay upright. And then when you're asked to do anything beyond that, your body just can't. And so it makes complete sense to me how it was diagnosed because it was diagnosed by at least three professionals. So what's Carrie's takeaway from the experience? and her advice for other parents. When the diagnosis isn't fitting in your mind, when the treatments aren't working, when something just doesn't seem right, look for other professionals who may be able to help reach out to other people who have similar stories. Just because we ended up with a rare autoimmune disease that nobody ever would have looked for doesn't mean there aren't common medical causes that could be causing issues that look like ADHD. Like any mother, Carrie wants to protect her son, but Carrie 
isn't just any mother. In fact, she's made it her mission to not just protect but advocate for her son and others with adrenal gland deficiencies like Addison's disease. If he was in a car crash, if he had a major injury, even if there was a major stress, he would need an emergency injection called Solucortaf. Within a half hour, that would literally be saving his life. Paramedics in Milwaukee County not only do not carry that medication, but at this time they are not allowed to inject that medication even if the patient carries it. So one of the things I'm working on is getting a protocol in place so that somehow people with any kind of adrenal insufficiency could be injected with one of the medications in those situations that would save their lives. I'm also going to be speaking with second-year medical students who are in the process of studying endocrinology just to hear the real-life story that, you know, even though it's really rare and our pediatrician never had a case of it, our school nurse never had a case of it till now, it is out there and it is something that affects people and it affects them greatly and can be masked as other things. If you want to learn more about what she's doing, we'll post an email address where you can contact Carrie on our CTSI website along with this show. We applaud Carrie's advocacy efforts. And on that positive note, we've reached the end of this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Again, our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. Susanna Visser, Dr. Omar Ali, and a special thanks to Carrie for sharing her son's Jacob's story with our show. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make an appointment on your calendar to join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happy, healthy days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. And be sure to share your knowledge of this show and the CTSI with all your family members and friends. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, co-produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer. Engineered and co-produced by Tom Crawford and Jeremy Kuzniar in collaboration with WMSC Radio. The CTSI and this radio program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.